Hi, I'm Karen Rolfe, and welcome to Horse Training in Harmony. This podcast is about you making progress with your horse in a way that you both can love. It's about learning how to move and be in harmony. Because yes, you really can develop a horse to be both athletic and happy. When we show up as our best selves for our horses, our horses will show up for us. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. I have a really special guest for you guys today. And this is Antonia Henderson, and she's a professor at Langara, I think is how I say that right, college in Vancouver. Uh, she's an equine psychologist. She has a PhD in um, personal, personality social psychology. And I first became aware of Antonia when I was up in Canada, and I got um, a copy of Oh my gosh, I think it's Horse Sport Magazine. It's a Canadian magazine. She had an article in there. And then since then, I researched other articles, but her article was about the happy athlete, you know? So I was like, wow, <laughs> this is something that I really am interested in. And she just said, shed so much light on some things that are really important to me, um, but from the scientific perspective. But you're also a horse, a horse, a rider, right? Is it dressage that you do? I do do dressage, yeah. I um, I actually came up through the hunter jumper ranks, but uh, then I I switched to dressage about ten years ago. Decided it was probably time to keep all four feet on the ground, and uh, <laughs> um, so I've been pursuing that ever since, and do I, and compete at the amateur level. Awesome, yeah. And yeah. and something I I because I'm actually a um, a bachelor's in biology, and my dad's a professor at university in the science department, so. I have a science brain, but I also have the horse lover brain. And yeah. a lot of the things that you wrote about really connected with me because you could you could see it from the I love my horse perspective and yeah. then also from the scientific perspective. So um, two things that real well, many things really um, connected with with what I, you know, what I wanted to talk to you about. But two things in particular really struck me and. I'd love for you to be able to talk a little bit more about these. And one is um, kind of connected to when, when I teach and when I train, I really value curiosity is like high on my list of characteristics to really um, bring out in people and in horses. And so you talked about an experiment measuring sort of the investigativeness, the level um, of kind of curiosity and how much a horse is willing to investigate and connected it to their lifestyle and whether they're in an environment that's social or they have room to move and they're feeling you know, happy uh, compared to horses in more of a stressful or even a learned helplessness state. And I just, it's such a passion of mine to look at the, the stand, industry standard for horse care you know, when you go to a training barn, if, if a new horse owner says, how am I supposed to keep my horse? And they go to the best training facility. The model is not necessarily ideal for horses. Everybody's packed into stalls. And I, I just think it's time that we took a, a fresh look at this. And I love that you're actually able to measure it. So that's the one thing is kind of there's a lot there, I'm sure. But <laughs> the investigativeness and how you can measure their life, how their lifestyle affects that, because I think uh, the trait of curiosity and investigativeness for training is great. But as you will point, you know, point out, sometimes the horses that are not investigating are actually described as very good boys or very compliant. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a new way of looking at that. And then, um, well, I think that's a that's a whole subject on itself. And then um, part of the learn helplessness. Uh, piece when I'm training, one of the promises that I make to my horses is that whenever they feel a pressure, there is always something that they can do to let mm. to ease the pressure. There's always an open door. That's my yeah. And so the difference between those kind of aids, where you kind of present a puzzle, give them a moment to find the answer, versus always very controlling aids which can be a split second of difference in timing, but it can make all the difference in the world to keep them alive. So 
having rambled about all that, <laughs> um, I'd love for you just to share, um, you, you know, your thoughts on this and, um, yeah, what, I'll let you go now. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, um, I, I can certainly, um, talk more about, uh, the investigative behavior that you were talking about in that particular study, uh, what their, the test that they did with horses is what they call a cognitive bias test. And cognitive bias meaning is their thinking biased in a particular direction towards optimism or pessimism. And it's a test that's been done with um, other animals and and only recently done with horses. Of course, when we're trying to find out what horses are thinking or what any animals are thinking, we can't, um, you know, we can't get them to, to take part in interviews and fill out questionnaires. And so we have to get pretty creative about how we're going to look at that. And so this study was quite cool. They did, um, they had, uh, a horse was trained to understand that the, the bucket on, the, a lidded bucket on the right-hand side of this paddock enclosure would always contain a food reward and the one on the other side never would. And so horses would, you know, start to understand that if they went and, and they learned how to open the lid and flip up the lid and get their treat on the right-hand side bucket. Then what they did was start to introduce um, other buckets in between those two. So, uh, and the question was whether horses would investigate or not investigate. And what they found was that the horses, they had uh, two different uh, sources of horses. One were from riding schools, and those horses were kept um, inside. I think some of them might have had small paddock turnout, but not very much, and were kept in, you know, basically how we keep our horses uh, mm -hmm. in, um, in stalls and were ridden uh, because they were school horses. They had a fair bit of exercise under saddle, but they didn't really have any free time. Then the other horses were ones that were privately owned and kept at um, people's homes. They lived in paddocks with uh, another horse. I mean, lived in pastures, sorry, I should say, uh, with another horse and uh, or a herd. And so had what they call a very enriched environment as opposed to the impoverished environment of the school horses. And what they found was that the horses with the enriched environment had much more investigative behavior. Uh, they would first of all go to the right, get their treat, eat that up, and then um, and then start exploring all the other buckets to see if, you know, possibly the jackpot is here as well, even though it wasn't. And uh, But the other horses who had lived in this impoverished environment went uh, to the bucket, got their treat reward, and then stopped, just gave up. And... Mm -hmm and just didn't bother investigating any further. And what they were linking it to, and I think that there's a, a lot of support for this, is this idea of learned helplessness. That mm -hmm. um, Would you like me to describe a bit about learned helplessness? I would love that, yes, okay. please. Okay, well, um, uh, Martin Seligman uh, was the first one to study learned helplessness and coined the term that was in like 1968. And he actually did these pretty horrific experiments with dogs uh, where they were uh, put on a, a, a floor and the floor, they, they, they heard the sound of the bell. And then when they heard the sound of the bell, the floor became electrically charged. And they learned that if they jumped over the barrier onto the other side of the floor, they got away from the shock. And so dogs were trained to pay attention to the sound of that bell and that meant get the hell out of Dodge and get over to the other side. <laughs> then what he did, which um, is the horrible part of the experiment, is that he charged the floor on both sides so that no amount of jumping back and forth was going to relieve that electric shock. And what ended up happening was the dogs just lay down on the floor that mm -hmm. was electrically charged and cried. And, and when then he reintroduced the escape route, where they could jump onto the other side and and relieve the the suffering, they didn't try. They just wow. gave up. Wow. And he coined that term learned helplessness, that when dogs or other animals or people are faced with inescapable aversive events, they give up trying. And um, people have looked at this in, in situations of domestic abuse, um, 
you know, children in abusive situations and and latterly looking at animals in captivity and and particularly horses and what although horses suffering is so subtle that we tend not to not to see it and what researchers are now looking at is that this state of learned helplessness is actually something that we might even try and foster we might even like because they're good horses they behave yeah. themselves they don't give us any trouble and so isn't th isn't that what we want a nice compliant good-natured guy you know and yeah. uh, and not and we don't see their suffering uh, and and that um, and then when we relate that to housing that's huge um, because I, I keep on saying to people, if there is one thing I could change by all the work I do and the writing I do about and being an equine psychologist, the one thing I would change is how we show how we house our our performance horses today. And solitary confinement is just as hard for horses as it is for people, mm -hmm. and we use it to torture people. Mm -hmm. In fact, recently we've decided it's too heinous a torture to keep on doing, and. Uh, we're looking at our whole prison system and the whole question of solitary confinement because it, it's too horrible. Yeah. And that's how we keep our horses. Yeah. And it's really, it, they're such amazing creatures because they, <laughs> they can forgive so much, but they can just deal with it. And it's sort of amazing as a flight animal, but um, something that I've, I've had heard stories of happening again and again is you have a, a beginner or a timid rider they want to have the sweetest, most gentle, bomb-proof horse. Mm -hmm. So they go to the riding stable and they pick the one that's like the reliable beginner lesson horse, mm -hmm. and they bring it home. And at some point, <laughs> some months later, the horse relaxes and goes, you know, life is pretty good. And <laughs> out comes this monster. And it's happened enough times that I'm thinking – I don't think that that, you know, I think that was a shut down, a checked out horse. And then his nervous system came alive and he hadn't, you know, really had the communication. And it's, I mean, what you're saying just resonates so much to, with me on so many levels. And I, and I think um, there's so many little choices where we can either, you know, try to get a horse just to deal with something or be obliging or, you know, for me, the, the, um, the goal is communication and cooperation. So little things like um, a horse that I had someone ask me to help them with a horse who was terrified of being in the wash stall. And they would, they, it was a Spanish barn and they'd go in, put the horse there and then clip them on. And most horses just stood there and this horse was just losing it. So when I took it, I let him in the wash stall and then he went to run out and I let him run out and then back in and out. <laughs> And back in and out and they're like oh you need to and I was like no like let's wait yeah. until he decides he's okay and that was just their routine they were on a schedule you know that horse didn't fit and just after just letting the horse do that that he wasn't mm -hmm. helpless he could you know have a choice yeah. then he became okay with the wash doll and then you could clip him you know but it's, yeah. it's but how many times are there little choices where we um, you know, mm -hmm. the phrase, knock the, curios knock the curiosity out of the horse or make him feel like he doesn't have a choice. And yeah. all those, so many of those little things adding up, then you, yeah. so it's, it's funny because a lot of times when horses come to me, it was a kind of a joke. I was like, oh, you know, come to me for naughtiness training. I'll turn your horse into the most annoying <laughs> horse in the barn. And I have a lot of kind of extroverted, gotta be into everything. And I, I love that. I, even yeah. though sometimes they're a little harder to deal with in the moment, mm -hmm. but ultimately the training for me is so much better because I've got a horse that's like proud of himself and they're, they know what the game is and they're, and they're into it. But, um, but I do understand that in some situations, you know, you want to just compliant horse to be just go yeah. follow the rail and don't look right or left. So I think it's a really interesting question you bring up is, are we doing mm -hmm. this on purpose? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, and certainly in certain um, certain industry or breed standards, you know, that is what they're looking for. Um, in the, you know, the today's show ring hunter that's supposed to be, you know, practically unconscious. 
uh, the uh, Western pleasure horse with his nose on the ground. I mean, I don't want to pick on particular disciplines. I think we see it in a lot of places where mm -hmm. it started out with an idea that um, I think with hunters it was, you know, their manners and way of going would be judged and then somehow somebody decided that manners and way of going meant to be just unbelievably slow and, and unconscious. I think, I think the uh, introduction of the hunter derbies has actually been a, a positive thing because it's asking for a horse that jumps big jumps and jumps with some pace and actually, you know, is allowed to shake his head in the corner because he did it, <laughs> you know, he had it yeah. jumped with some effort and feeling pretty good about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, but the more that we're going towards that kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it we're yeah we're we're just you know we breed this animal with all this athleticism, and then ask and then try and take all the athleticism <laughs> out of it. Yeah, <laughs> leave it to humans to take a positive thing and keep going with it until it's a negative. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and and you know, and I think competition competition is challenging because it it changes people's priorities. And like you said, now there's more and more horses. You, you spend six figures on a horse, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever is expensive to you. And the tendency is to go, Oh, I don't want him to get hurt. Oh, I don't want him to, I don't want him to get kicked by another horse. And that just feeds into the putting them in boxes. And, and another thing that you wrote about was an experiment where you measured um, the negative behaviors that were showing up and measured the cortisol levels. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, cortisol levels are higher in the stressed horses, you know that, but the couple things that you, that I thought were interesting is one, the horses that were weaving and pawing and maybe things like that actually had lower levels because they were finding an outlet for mm -hmm. the stress. And then, and then when you had, you said that when you asked the caretakers to kind of keep mm -hmm. a log on the on, or the experiment was done where caretakers mm -hmm. kept a log on the negative behaviors and in the higher stressed barns, the caretakers were having trouble even noticing when the behavior was showing up because they became, it was just too normal for them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's mm -hmm. another real interesting wake up call for the industry going, not yeah. only is it present, but even when asked to see it and keep a log of it, you're, mm -hmm. you're just not, not seeing it yeah. anymore. Yeah, I mean, you touch on two things there, and one I think is, you know, and certainly another one of my things in the industry I'd like to change is that horses with stereotypies, and what we mean by a stereotypy is a, a repetitive, chronic behavior uh, that it, it has a particular sequence, but it doesn't seem to serve any obvious purpose. Mm -hmm. And so we think of cribbing and weaving, but you can also have milder stereotypies such as playing with your horse playing with his tongue or nodding his head or doing weird things with his lips but and it doesn't mean that they just do it once it's it's a you know it's like a polar bear pacing at the zoo it has it has a very very set sequence and at this chronic pattern and what they've found with some of these stereotypies is that it actually uh clicks into the brain's reward system and so um becomes a stress reducer. It actually gives a, um, a, a, a better endorphin, uh, high is probably the wrong word, but certainly a calming agent. And so it really, there. I mean, and there's been research back and forth about what's called the coping hypothesis, but I think there's starting to be some pretty um, hard evidence uh, showing actual physiological changes in cortisol levels, heart rate, etc., for horses that um, are, are cribbing uh, and that it actually does help them to, to manage a stressful environment. And, and people often say, well, my horse doesn't live in a stressful environment. I look after him beautifully. But I would tell you, I would argue that most modern sport horses living in boarding stables in stalls are living in a stressful environment. And I know those are kind of hard words, but <laughs> horses weren't designed for stalls. Stalls yeah. were designed for people. And, you know, so these horses are, are, are doing their best to cope. And then, so then when we try and prevent them from doing that through cribbing collars, through uh, cribbing collars that give them electric shocks that oh. stick, spikes into their gullet, uh, 
there, um, I, I was even reading about a, a preventative measure called cribbing rings where they put um, actual rings in between the gums of the teeth so when the horse grabs onto a hard surface it exerts pressure and pain uh -huh. and then one vet was saying no it's really better if you actually drill through the bone because then they don't come out you know and use bigger rings I mean it's just heinous but the but to me the worst cruelty is just preventing them at all like yeah. if you have you know, it doesn't, you know, people talk about a humane cribbing collar because it doesn't stick butt spikes in them and it doesn't electric shock them, but it stops them from cribbing. Mm -hmm. And that's not humane. They need yeah. to crib, you know. So my say is provide a safe injection site. Give them a place to crib where they're not going to pull their water bowl off the wall and they're not going to destroy the barn and, and let them do it. And then as much as you can, start to improve their environment by giving them more turnout time, let them socialize with other horses, let them touch other horses. Uh, you know, and I know that people are really nervous about that because mm -hmm. they say, you know, God, this horse is so expensive. I can't afford to have him injured. But mm -hmm. I, I can, shall I speak to that? Yeah, I mean, yes, because yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah. I, I understand it, but I also know that there's other injuries and illnesses that happen because they're not moving exactly. the, the tendon yeah. ligament chances of you know if they're standing assault and they go out and do something athletic or the chance of colic mm. because they're not moving and grazing normally yeah. and ulcers and and yeah so I'd love to hear yeah because that. I think that you know I, I I think to a certain extent the the fear that horses will injure each other if they're turned out together is is unfounded I uh, there, one of my favorite studies is one that was done at the Swiss National Stud with their, with their stallions. This was Sabrina Brafer Freeman who did this, and she looked at turning the stallions out together in their non-breeding season. And everybody's like, "What? You can't do that! I mean, these aren't these aren't horses out on the range. I mean, these are expensive sport horses, mm -hmm. and the, you know, they're the real thing here. That's you know, that's a lot of horse and." And she said, no, I think this is doable. And they took some precautions. They um, allowed the horses to meet each other mm -hmm. over the fence first in, in an adjacent stall. So there was some pre-exposure. They, um, they removed their hind shoes before the first encounter. They were able to put them back on again after about four days. They, um, they made sure that the stallions were far away from the mares. They made sure that resources were plentiful. Horses don't fight if there's nothing to fight about, you know, mm -hmm. so there are lots of stations. And, and what they found was that the horses engaged in what they call ritualistic behaviors, which are kind of an, an abbreviation of the real behavior, you know, like, I'm going to strike you and the foot comes up this high. I'm going to bite you. you know, and, that, um, and a lot of squealing and a lot of carrying on, but actually no contact. And... Uh, and they um, and they found that after three or four days, all of that subsided, and there was nothing. And then, and in subsequent years, because then they would put them back into this intensive management when they were in their breeding season, and then in non-breeding season they'd do it again. And they found that in subsequent years, even that ritualistic behavior subsided. Wow. And it and it really makes sense because we do see bachelor bands in horses in feral conditions mm -hmm. where stallions hang out together. And when we think about it, horses have evolved to avoid confrontation. It's evolutionarily costly. You know, yep. it's much better if you can get someone to go away without engaging in a fight because that's going to be resource costly to you. It's going to be resource it, winners or losers. It's going to be resource costly. It, it doesn't yeah. make sense. So if you can get, find a way around it without fighting, that's going to be better. I yeah. mean, you know, the only caveat I would say with that is when we're turning our horses out together, we have to remember that they're not choosing their friends, we're choosing them. So we might be wrong. Like, they don't all love each other. I mean, yeah. there might be a personality conflict. So that's where you try it out with the pre-exposure, yeah. you know, between stalls and, and let horses touch and find out who's compatible and who's not. And, yeah. you know, if they're not compatible, don't turn those ones out together. Yeah. Choose a different pair. Yeah, and that's that's so great. And and in, in my herd, I have a herd of boys, and then I have two mares, and then I have this other horse that came to me late. And when he, he came from a competition barn, and when he came, they said he can't be turned out for more than 45 minutes. 
And they were, they were correct. It, he went out and about 45 minutes later, he starts running in a panic going, oh my God, I have to get back in my stall. So it took some time where I had to have a stall with a paddock and then he could go in and out and test it out. And yeah. he would only go out there for 45 minutes, he'd go back in a stall, but that's not normal. That's a, that's a no. mentally ill horse. So then yeah. it got to be, he, oh, look, he's out in the paddock more. Then I moved him to a pasture that was away from his stall and then he could only be out there for two hours. And, but I, you know, I just gradually yeah. expanded it. Now he's out all the time and, uh, but there's one, uh, I have a very little horse who's actually really dominant. So around feeding time, if they were together, it's just chaos. And especially if there were mares around, because the little one's very stallion-y. But, so what I do is I have, so they're in three different places. But at night, Hotshot gets to go out, the big one who came from the competition barn. He gets to go out at night and explore the whole property. <laughs> and then during the day, when I ride my horses, one by one, I ride them and then let them loose. And mm -hmm. I ride the little one last. So they, he gets a chance all morning to socialize with everybody. Everybody is all together, the mares and the geldings. And then when I turn the little one out, the mares go back in their little paddock because they're on a diet anyway. And all the boys go out together and I put the big one hot shot back. So there's, there can be a little yeah. creativity, but yeah. all my horses get a chance to be with each other and be in a outside their pasture, but inside a safe area. That's really interesting. And yeah. I, I even find, you know, they are like 10 acre pastures that every few months I switch which pasture they're in and they get uh -huh. so happy. They're like, the new, oh, you know, yeah. I have to change. It's like something different. I just breaks my heart when yeah. you see a horse standing in a stall or in the same paddock like year after year. And, you know, some, some people have limited areas, but I always think there's a way you can make things more interesting for them and find a way, like you said, find the combination that works and do yeah. it smartly, but to return them to normal. It's not, yeah. it's not normal when someone says, oh, my horse needs a stall. He, he's not okay outside. I'm like, that's mental yeah, illness. That's, no. <laughs> he needs to be deinstitutionalized. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, um, and one of my, my newest quests is, you know, to, to look at the business model because the business model is what makes also feeds into horses being installed because every trainer needs to pack as many, you know, training horses in as possible or lesson horses. And, um, there's just, you know, spate, it's just comes down to numbers. But I think, yeah. I think it's time that the professional way of keeping a horse is actually the best for the horse, except for maybe short yeah. periods of time. So. Yeah. I, I mean, I actually saw at a, a conference, um, uh, the International Society of Equine Science at conference was presenting and, and somebody was uh, showed us um, this video footage of horses being kept in a kind of a loafing shed similar to how cows are kept and, and with about that density. I mean, there were, you know, there were <laughs> Shetland ponies and, and show jumpers and dressage horses and they were all milling about in this inside in a big shed and then they had this big conveyor belt that came around with hay and you know the dominant horses got at the front of the line and the more subordinate ones got at the end of the line and you know I mean I thought wow that it is is revolutionary I mean and of course it reduced their um, um, staffing costs tremendously yeah. right it was just so much easier they had a they even had a kind of a sort of like a vacuum thing that picked up droppings that, you know, went around, the, like and bumped, you know, and went around in and around oh the horses God. and, you know, yeah, because they were trying to show that, it, I, I think what they were trying to illustrate was that it is possible to keep horses in group housing in a very economical way. And yeah. I think that, you know, people have, one of the drawbacks of it is that people have said, well, we you know we don't have that kind of acreage. We can't, we, you know, mm -hmm. we, we can't possibly do that. And I think, as you say, we need to be more creative about this because what we're doing is extraordinarily harmful. Wow. And it just it, it isn't okay that we, you know, we so have to change that. And if we don't have a, a lot of space, then we have to figure out how to do it without a lot of space. And, yeah, I mean, sure, it, you know, when you go and see the green hills of Kentucky and see these mares and foals out on acres and acres and acres of pasture, well, of course that's ideal. But you know horses are, are are pretty compromising you know how if we just gave them a little they'd be so much happier 
Yeah, there's you, a, you know, if you just let them touch, they're happier. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard of like the idea of like a paddock paradise or some some people they have their farm and you know how a lot of times farms will have like a perimeter fence that goes around and some small farms can make like a little perimeter path that goes kind of around the whole property and weaves in and out. It doesn't really take you know any more space if you only have like a barn and arena and then another one turnout you can have a little lane and then you uh, put like the water is way over here and then the hay is way over there and the horses have to yeah. actually travel during the day and go find oh, where they're. Oh, that's a fantastic idea. Yeah, yeah no, I hadn't seen that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting concept and um and I think again it keep it keeps their lives a little bit more interesting and for those of us yeah. who are interested in training, you know, I want my horse's brain like oh, what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, I mean even even things like um, like food choices, like they find that uh, stereotypies can be reduced when when you give horses multiple choices of forage, like oh, so different really? kinds of hay, and and put them in different feeding stations. So put one in a hay net, put one in a manger, put one something in different places in their enclosure, and they actually um, find that they take longer to eat their food, so that they're eating longer, which is Again, another one of our problems with our modern housing practices is we give them this absolutely fabulous, delicious hay and grain that's consumed in a minute, and mm -hmm. then the horse is standing there with long periods of an empty stomach and nothing to do, mm. which makes them vulnerable to ulcers and to stereotypies and or other kinds of abnormal behaviors, like your horse that couldn't get turned out. You know, we wouldn't call that a stereotypy, but it's certainly abnormal. And uh, but just even giving them choice. <laughs> I love that idea. Just a yeah. yeah, just a simple choice. And I wonder how many yeah. other other choices that, you know, these again, the little moments in your day with your mm -hmm. horse when the horse hesitates or, you know, my one horse that when I trailer her somewhere, sometimes on the way home, she's like, I don't want to get in the trailer and then I get this message. I'm like, she'll look at the other side, I'm like, do you want to ride on the other side of the trailer? And I open that side and she'll get right on. You know, like <laughs> yeah. I mean it's ridiculous, but you know I'm I'm open to that. Like you know, I can be flexible. But you know, you think about how many how many times that maybe those choices are not allowed to happen. And and when yeah. you say like just in just with feed choice, how that can lower the stress mm -hmm. of a horse. How many mm -hmm. other little times you know could we just maybe be a little flexible and see what the horse is wanting to do yeah. and not, not yeah. always go for just stand there and be compliant. Do yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I recently, uh, uh, my horse had to have a layoff for a little while, and I moved him to a friend's place where he was out of a show barn and um, and is in a situation where he can go in and out 24/7, and he is never inside. <laughs> he even to eat his hay. The, my friend had to put the hay closer to the door because he likes to stand outside and put his head in to That's eat. Funny. And it's, you know, it's raining, it's snowstorms, it's like, no, it, he's like, I, I, I've had the life of a show horse, I'm not getting trapped in oh. there again. He always... You know, that's his choice is to yeah. be outside all the time. I mean, he has a great blanket and he's got a hood and he's like dry and warm. But yeah, it, yeah I think given the choice, yeah. horses would not choose what we've created for yeah. them. That's for sure. I, I took one of my horses to a training barn once to just, you know, work, play with this trainer and uh, show her what I was yeah. doing. And, and I had, I was like, I just need a little paddock. He'll be fine. And uh, it started to drizzle and she came outside. She's like, you've got to put him in. I'm like, no, I don't. You know, he's fine. She's like, no, no, it's raining. I was like, he's fine. <laughs> and I mean, I, I ended up putting him in the stall because I thought she was going to have stress. <laughs> I'm like, this lady's freaking out. I'm going to put my, I was like, I'm sorry, Monty, you're going to stay in the stall and I'll take you out for a walk. But I mean, it's like so yeah. ingrained. Like, no, I'm like, it's a horse. That was super interesting. And it's so nice to get some scientific confirmation of what, feels right to me I'm always whenever I have a horse standing in a stall it's like I feel it every minute of the day I'm like oh my god he's still in a stall um, so that's really great to get that insight thank you now I'd like to ask a little bit more about the timing of AIDS and and how that affects their mental state and psychology and um, the difference between just controlling AIDS 
you know, the kind of, I got to get it done now. What sometimes I call it the, we have to cross the highway, you know, it's like, we're going (laughs) AIDS. And then there's the communication aids, which are always my goal, which is I present um, a pressure, a suggestion, you know, something going, what do you think about this? The horse can experiment a little bit, find the answer. And then I say yes. And, you know, a little bit of, I think, negative reinforcement and then a little bit of positive um, reinforcement that I'll, you know, a lot of riding is that I'll present some sort of pressure, which doesn't always mean, you know, I'm clobbering him, but like, here's a suggestion. I'm asking for something. What can you do when they do it? The pressure goes away. And then I might say, thank you and give a reward um, compared to the, you know, chain over the nose, strong aids. And here we go. We got to get across the highway. We'll talk about this later. Cause I find, um, you know, us coming back to competition, the, pre- you know, the, the prevalence of competition, is kind of the skill of getting it done right now, whether it's working or not. And that is a skill. But then I think a lot of times uh, people teach those skills of just get it done, get it done, get it done, keep your leg on, keep your leg on, keep your leg on, instead of um, instructing. And they don't, people don't necessarily know that they're learning controlling aids compared to building a communication. So I'd love to hear the, your perspective on that sort of subject. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, Karen, you're you're touching on a lot of um, real issues in um, basic learning theory, and uh, and I think um, what we see often in in the, you know the scientific description of how how horses learn, how rats, pigeons, people learn, uh, there are a lot of similarities there, and we learn the primary way that we teach horses. Uh, to go under saddle is through negative reinforcement. And a lot of people say, oh, no, 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 I don't use negative reinforcement, and they're confusing it with punishment. And actually, con- negative reinforcement and punishment are, are entirely different things. And negative reinforcement is when we uh, apply some kind of stimulus, usually something that's slightly aversive, and then when we release that pressure, that's the indicator that that's the behavior we want. And so we make it more likely that we'll see that behavior in the future. So we're trying to encourage a wanted behavior through the release of of pressure or the release of a slightly aversive stimulus. Punishment is exactly the opposite. Punishment is trying to get rid of a behavior we don't want by applying an aversive stimulus after after the behavior has occurred. And usually isn't all that effective in horse training. Uh, There are a lot of conditions that need to be exactly right for punishment to actually work. And one of the biggest problems with it is that rather than associating it with the behavior we don't want, they associate it with the person who delivered it. Mm. <laughs> and so and so we we make an enemy out of you know ourselves to our horses. So uh, but but negative reinforcement, the, the key to successful negative reinforcement is the release. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is the indicator to the horse that yes, that's the behavior I want. Yes, you've done the right thing. So if I apply pressure with my legs and the horse moves forward, I need to release that pressure to tell him moving forward was the behavior I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Or if I apply pressure with one leg, the horse doesn't know that that means go sideways, but he tries out different things because, well, that, be, that leg there doesn't feel that great. Maybe I'll try stepping over here. Nope, that didn't work. Oh, she wants me to step over here. Then if we release that pressure, that's telling the horse, yeah, you got it. That's the behavior I want. When we don't release the pressure, we punish him. We've Mm. actually done exactly the opposite of what we want. Rather than making that behavior more likely to occur in the future, we're making it less likely. Because now we've said, we apply pressure, the horse moves, we keep on applying pressure, so he's saying, oh, well, I guess that's not it. And we make it less likely that we're gonna see that behavior in the future. So we're we're working in the opposite way that we intend. And often, often as amateurs, we do that inadvertently. You know, we we end up, um, you know, the horse makes a tremendous effort over a jump and we lose our balance and we catch him in the mouth telling him, don't do that again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, yeah. Yeah. You know, or, or our horse is, you know, in, in beautiful self-carriage and we are so excited about that we forget to ease up on the reins. And mm-hmm. so the horse goes, oh, I guess self-carriage isn't it. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, a, a lot of the the trick to 
you know, good negative reinforcement is good timing. And, and sometimes as amateurs, we don't always have that, or as beginner riders, we don't necessarily have that. But we can develop it, and we can get better at it, and horses are tremendously forgiving. So we, um, they seem to be um, able to put up with quite a few mistakes and keep <laughs> on trying to find the right answer. Uh, and I think that that's where, but we can, as I say, inadvertently punish our horses when we think that if we don't release that pressure. And that's where we really need to think about negative reinforcement is the reward is the release of the mm -hmm. pressure the release of whatever it is you're doing, if it's pulling on the reins or if it's squeezing with the legs or if it's uh, whatever those things are. And, and that tells the horse, yes, you have given me the right behavior. Yeah, what we would ideally... Hmm? No, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I was just going to say what we would ideally like to do is to be able to work towards not having to use negative reinforcement at all. And we can use that with another kind of learning that we talk about with um, with classical conditioning, and I, I won't get too bogged down in the in the learning terminology, but if we put two things together, if we and those things are always paired, if a you know if I say the word asparagus and the horse always gets a carrot, then he's <laughs> going to find out that the word asparagus is a pretty good thing, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. really what what clicker training is all about. It's like it's really just putting in a marker for the, teaching the horse something good will happen. Mm -hmm. So if we're using negative reinforcement, and let's say I want my horse to collect his gait, and I start to apply some pressure with the reins, and I start to try and engage him with my legs, I'm putting on some negative reinforcement, he gives me some more self-carriage, I release that pressure. But if at the same time I can do that, I get the self-carriage, and then I do a tightening of my core muscle, I'm teaching my horse that tightening of my core muscle, in, in fact, if I do that slightly before mm -hmm. I do the negative reinforcement, which would be the proper timing, then I'm teaching him that tightening of my core muscles means that I want you to collect. And you can avoid the me pulling on your reins or, or, or click, kicking your sides if you do that first. And so we can actually move towards using this tool of classical conditioning, giving them a cue that isn't aversive in any way, that's saying that's the behavior I want. And ultimately, that's what that that would be beautiful training. That okay. it, it's an ideal that we would all strive towards, so that we can have a horse in self carriage without using any negative reinforcement. Yeah. That's that's really awesome, and that's something that I really highlight is to before asking that we have an intention. And we have a body language associated with. So I like to yeah. to have my horse because they they what a job they have. They have to figure out okay, is she waving to her friend, or am yeah. I supposed to do something here? So yeah. I I think it's really important that um that the the person has this intention, you know, because they have to know is she adjusting her stirrups or is that a leg yield? You know what the heck's going yeah. on? And yeah. you know how they're, I do believe they can read our intentions or if nothing else, we're more focused when we have an intention and they can mm -hmm. feel something changing. But I like to teach a body language. So especially mm -hmm. with riding, if you tighten your core, it's going to change how your seat moves. It'll naturally mm -hmm. affect their back. But even on the ground, I start it with, yeah. I'm going to sit up. So say my horse is trotting along and I'd like them to go more collected. I'll start to sit up now. When I first do that, yeah. they're like, What's she doing? You know, yeah. but I might sit up and then I might do a, ask him for a transition to halt or, you know, and then and then trot again or something where they're like, oh, she brought her weight kind of back. I better be ready for that. So that is it's like a the cue yeah. that you your dream aid first. Then if yes. they can't find the answer, I might go, can I give you a hint? I'll add on yeah. some sort of pressure or something that makes them go. How do I get that to stop? Mm -hmm. Release it. Go, you know. And so that yeah. hopefully if I'm consistent, they go, you know what, every time before she starts waving that stick, you know, in front of me, 10 feet, she does this with her body. I can yeah. see that because yeah. I, I, I really yeah. think this is, you know, from the zebras on the plains that have to be able to discern the difference between a, a lion who gets up because he's just stretching and going to lay back down or a lion who's thinking, mm -hmm. I'm hungry. You know, yeah. like, and that's the, important like, distinction. Yeah, yeah, they they have. I think it's really within their range. It's not woo woo. It's like they can read intention. They can feel when someone's thinking in their direction, and I think we need to use that. And you know what you mentioned about um, you know, 
the, the very sincere mistakes that we make. You know, we all do it. We're in the wrong place. We fumble. We lose our balance. Yeah. And thank, thank God that horses are forgiving. But I do know there's, it's also taught. It's taught on purpose because yeah. I get a lot of these students and horses coming to me. I mean, it's very normal in a competition dressage arena to go listen to the warm-up ring and you'll hear, keep your leg on, don't let them get lazy. Then they'll give them a, yeah. give them a, give them yeah. a break, but keep them going, you know, and yeah. Yeah. Are, you know, hold it. Don't let that shoulder, hold that shoulder. And I'm thinking, gosh, there's, it's just constant, yeah, constantly controlled. And I, I never thought about what you said of negative reinforcement without the release turns into punishment. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you're saying, keep your leg on so he doesn't slow down so he's going but keep your leg on you're yeah. actually punishing your horse a little bit every single stride and yeah. and you know and that's I, the behavior we want and that's we, the behavior we're punishing we want. Him when, we, when, when he's giving us the desired behavior mm-hmm. and I, I think that but sorry I'm, I'm sort of jumping in here but it I, I wanted to talk about what we have to be understand what we mean by the desired behavior because if you know it I'm not going to have my four-year-old piaffing. I mean, so how do I get to piaff? You know, and and so, and that's where we have to understand. Again, learning theory talks about shaping, which is um, rewarding closer and closer approximations of the desired behavior. So, I am obviously not going to get all of that from from day one, and I have to be really in tune for any offering that's in the right direction, and to reward that with the release of that pressure. And I mean, that's how you know we see these incredible feats that dogs do in movies, or that you know. Uh, any of those kind of behaviors are taught through shaping that we, you know, there's some behaviors that occur spontaneously. If I, if I want my horse to pee on command, every time I see him pee, I give it a cue and give him a treat. I can get my horse to pee on command. It's very handy when you have to do a drug test or something. Yeah, right. so, <laughs> but, you know, to have my horse, uh, you know, do some behaviors like, you know, <laughs> jump over six, six foot fences in in front of jumbotron in uh, at Madison Square Garden. No, not so likely. But uh, so we have to reward those little baby steps along the way. And and I think sometimes what we forget is what is a baby step. You know, mm. even in things like trailer loading. You know, a horse putting his head down and sniffing the ramp is is a reward. Should be a rewarded behavior. He's investigating. He's having mm-hmm. a look. Uh, and 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 so often, or a horse takes one step on a trailer, and then people start beating him to keep him going. You know, no reward that behavior. That's exactly what we want. You know, take the pressure off at that point, right? That's where we want to be rewarding those baby steps, and I think that's a really integral part of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And and can that can just simply that kind of riding of not paying attention to that and just using controlling, can that cause learn helplessness? Absolutely. I think that those are, you know, we can have, we can have sort of two situations. We end up when there's no release of pressure, when there it's inescapable and there's no right answer. We often get conflict behaviors, what often people call naughty behaviors. The horse isn't being naughty. He's trying to find a way out. It's like this is a really, really uncomfortable place to be and I can't be here anymore. So I'm going to buck or rear or bolt or do whatever I can to to get out of this pressure. Or they give up. And Mm -hmm. then we have that learned helplessness where we get that, you know, that and, and you can that's a kind of glazed over look on a horse's eyes. I mean sometimes you do see that in in school horses, I think that, you know, I don't think that that necessarily has to come with a school horse if they're given enough, <laughs> enough free time, enough yeah. turnout time, and it, you know, to, because of course they are going to be dealing with beginners, and beginners are probably going to give them not be good with that release of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when they don't get any other outlet in their life to be horses, then we often do see that learned helplessness. And as Mm -hmm. you say, that situation where we have a horse that's just, you know, bomb-proof. Well, yeah, but horses weren't exactly designed to be (laughs) bomb-proof. In fact, they were designed to be exactly the opposite. So, uh, (laughs) because the ones who 
if something was suspicious or scary, the ones who got the hell out of Dodge were the ones who survived and passed on those genes to future generations. And the ones who went, oh, looks okay to me, probably yeah. wouldn't be here today. <laughs> yeah, it just it brings up, you know, the the if you if you want your horse to be okay in lots of situations, you know, kind of if you if you do it in one way, you're gradually building their trust and their exposure. Yeah. And if you do it in another way, you're risking something that may look bomb proof, but actually is like a, yeah. an explosion waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. And I've mm -hmm. seen so many of these horses, it's like, they're quiet, they're quiet, they're quiet until they're not. not. And you know, where, <laughs> yeah. where along the way, if you allow the horse to kind of be expressive, you know, when they're okay, when they're not kind of earlier, mm -hmm. early on, but you know, that takes, yeah. that takes the artful horsemanship, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. And, yeah, and I don't think that that's necessarily, um, you know, hasn't been the focus. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, learning theory has been really embraced by the dog world in dog training. They, you know, they talk about positive reinforcement and, and classical conditioning and habituation and desensitization and all kinds of that, you know, we have a hundred years of psychological research behind learning theory and know how it works. And it really hasn't been embraced by the horse world. And it's, we're more likely to be based on a bit of folklore. Uh, you know, we talk about a horse's willingness to please. That's another one of my pet peeves, really, because I think that, you know, it, because it, it it imbues in the horse some kind of moral conscience and that if he, mm. you know, this idea that he understands what we want, that he's, a, you know, he's a good soul if he goes ahead and does it and he's a naughty and bad soul if he doesn't, that he has some kind of benevolent or malevolent intentions. And I just, you know, no, when horses don't comply with what we want, it's because they're physically or psychologically not able to do it mm -hmm. or they um or they're or they don't understand the question you know we haven't made ourselves clear but they don't they don't do it out of spite or revenge they they don't i don't really believe that horses yeah. have that capacity of that kind of cognitive functioning i mean they they're too they're too in the moment for one thing to hold a grudge <laughs> I mean, yeah i mean yeah. They, they remember scary things that's for sure and they'll and they may make an association with a scary person because that's also in their survival instincts. But mm -hmm. I think that they, you know, really, it, it gets pretty simple. They do what works and they stop doing what doesn't work. Yeah. And if they're doing something you don't want them to do, it's probably because you're making it work somehow. So yeah, it's figure some, out how to make it not work. Right. We've, <laughs> we've created some sort of pattern yeah. that they've just learned. You know, I, I like to say, you know, horses, are, all horses are perfect until we come along and ask them to do something <laughs> yeah. they don't know how to do yet or don't understand. Yeah. And and I, yeah, I try exactly. to I try to be really conscious of that responsibility. It's like it's all me. Yeah. And that's also yeah. why when I have a really good ride, I'll say, "Good, good man, you're you're awesome." But yeah. I also go, "Good job, Karen. You didn't screw that one up." <laughs> there was yeah. a million ways I could have screwed that one up. But <laughs> so what? Um, yeah. And, you know, and it's funny because you said when years ago when I was training in a dressage facility I had a couple students who were dog trainers and they trained dogs for the mm -hmm. handicapped and they would watch me ride and they're like are you doing opera and are you doing classical what are you I'm like oh no I'm riding <laughs> and I thought I'm a grand prix rider I have no idea what this lady's talking about yeah. but I, I think there is something different with riding because at some point when you are together with your horse in balance mm -hmm. it really is like you know you shift your weight they move that way it's it's all very yeah. you know it's like a dance that just sort of naturally happens however the way I do dressage now, I have, you know, all long list of things that I need to have in place in a way that where I feel the horse is relaxed and understands they got the alphabet, they got the deal they're yeah. there. And then now I can operate in the, I'm going to change my balance and we're going to go yes. together. And, yes. and I do believe that that can feel really, that must feel cool to horse. Like check me, you know, yeah. I, I feel pride, yeah. pride in my horses, but um, I think without the feeling like they're they're mentally stable and they love their life and they're having a good time socializing, doing their horse stuff, and they feel safe with me, and that you know all those there's always a way out. There's always something they can figure out. Without all that in place, 
the dressage doesn't feel fun to me. It just feels like, yeah, cool. I really got him to move around today, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because so, you have to have, you have to have the common language and you know, it, uh, there's an exercise I, I've done with students when I'm teaching learning theory and I, and I get a volunteer to go out of the room and then everybody in the classroom decides what we're going to have that person do. And so maybe it's just, you know, walk up on, up to the front of the room and, I don't know, stand on a chair. And, and the person who's left the room has no idea what we're doing. They don't know that so they they just so they don't know that they're part of a test they don't we just ask them to leave the room that's it and so then they come back in and the person takes a few steps towards the front of the room and everybody cheers and claps and then he kind of goes starts to go to sit down and everybody's just does nothing and then he moves forward again cheering and clapping and so they keep on rewarding him closer and closer approximations of the desired behavior and not rewarding what we don't want and the person is completely at a loss like they have no idea <laughs> what what is this what am i supposed to do and and then we talk about and eventually the person will actually you know then they start to get okay i'm going to look at my audience is this right is this right you know am i getting closer and eventually they'll stand on the chair and you you need a really good sport to yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be the volunteer right and someone who tries, who's like trying yeah. stuff right yeah you choose an extrovert somebody who's really investigative behavior uh and but then we talk about it afterwards and the person who's put there they said it's just it, it, it's it's a horrible feeling because it's so confusing because you have no idea that you don't even know that you're being asked to do something and then and and you have no idea what that behavior is and I think we have to think about that every time we're asking a horse for a new movement I mean at least if they've been under saddle a few times they understand that they're probably okay I, I, there's going to be I going to have to stand on a chair or something yeah. I, I get <laughs> yeah. that now you yeah. know they're kind of a bit clued into that part yeah. but but they don't have any idea and so we want to be so clear about when we're giving that reward and 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 our reward isn't even it isn't even clapping in this case it's usually just stopping doing something you know that mm. they don't like um, right, right. and so we want to be just so crystal clear and give them every advantage that we can and so encouraging about every step that's closer to that and I think that it, it's a really good exercise to kind of think what it's like to be so in the dark about it. Because when we're coming from our point of view, it makes perfect sense. What's the matter with this horse is so stupid? Why doesn't he get it? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I teach my, my people, my students about yes, what I call yes moments. Because sometimes I'll be like, oh, my God, that looks great. How's that feel? And they're like, it's very nice. I'm like, does your horse know that you, you know, you're, you know, you're loving it. So one of the things that I really teach is have a picture, like say for energy on a scale from one to 10, how much energy do you want? Ask your horse, did he do it? Well, kind of, is that a yes? Or is that a, was it a hundred percent? Was it, did, you know, and I try to get people really dialed in because a lot of times people are like, well, that's pretty good. And then I, I teach them like that. I'm like, oh, well, you're doing that pretty good for you, you know? And I said, how would you feel? So I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to keep trying, keep looking. And then, you know, yes is so unmistakable. And yeah. I think sometimes when students are taught, they're like, am I doing it right? I'm like, it doesn't matter. What matters is you asked your horse, your horse did something. You have to give your horse feedback. It doesn't matter what anybody else looking at it thinks. It's between yeah. you and your horse. And I, I try to highlight what I call yes moments and I have them say it out loud. Yes. Yeah, so by the, you know, at the beginning of the clinic, <laughs> people great. are like, this is pretty good. And at the end of the clinic, they're riding around going, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Yes. Where is it? Where? Yes. <laughs> but the horses so love that. Like, yes, yeah. I got it. Instead of yeah. a rider going, I think this is right. Well, I better just keep my leg on so it looks good. I don't know. And everybody's like, yeah. what, what the heck just happened this last hour? So mm -hmm. it's just, it's yeah. really fun to get confirmation on that. And, that, you know. Yeah. To, and I think, and, and I think then once our horses understand what we're trying to say too, they're incredibly sensitive to, you know, very, very, very subtle body language so that we don't have to be 
doing a whole lot of stuff, right? I mean, you know, sometimes we think that it's more leg, more this, more that, and it's not. I mean, it, it, you know, there's a great story about um, Clever Hans. I, have you heard? Should I go for that? I, it, sure, okay. yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know it. Um, Clever Hans was a horse in uh, Berlin in the early 1900s and uh, owned by a guy, Mr. Von Austin. And he... Uh, it turns out that this horse could, uh, you could ask him questions and he'd paw out the correct answer. And so they asked him math problems and he could do math and they said, you know what, and he would nod or shake his head or paw out the right answer and he even had a, like a, um, an alphabet so that he, you know, <laughs> ponderously paw out the, um, I'm sure he must have had all kinds of arthritis problems from so much pawing, but he, um, he ended up being able to spell out things and you could, and he could even, so he did. He he knew things about the calendar. He could do math mathematics. He could had. He even had an opinion about um, a musical, whether a note was harmonious or sharp. Or, and so this attracted quite a bit of attention, and there were more and more crowds coming to see this amazing horse. And uh, and so the this was sort of also at the time when, you know, it was really we were really invested in the fact that we had kind of white human beings at the very top of this hierarchy and horses and animals were not capable of thought and that they were there for our use to exploit and so this was challenging a lot of notions about about that and so this Berlin Commission came to look at this horse and they had veterinarians and a circus trainer and a psychologist and a psychiatrist and all doing these tests and so they said okay well obviously the owner is cueing the horse so we need to take the owner out of the picture and then these various people asked Hans these questions and he got the right answer and he wow. kept on getting the right answer and they're going whoa something weird is happening here so they left one psychologist behind this Oscar Funkst and he starts going through it and he applies the scientific method to its own degree you know and and goes through very very systematically trying to figure out what the heck is going on and so he has situations and and Hans gives him the right answers too and so then he he, he decides that he's going to go through and test if the examiner knows the, the answer or if the examiner doesn't know the answer. So when the examiner knew the answer, Hans got the right answer. When the examiner did not know the right answer, Hans was not very good. Like wow. he started really failing. So he says, okay, so something's happening here. Something's coming from the examiner. And so then he does a million more tests and finally, finally figures out that Hans is responding to this very, very, very infinitesimal body cue that when the person starts, when the horse starts counting, the person just leans over just a tad, and then as he's coming to the correct answer, the examiner lifts his eyes and leans back a tiny bit, and Hans knows if he stops pawing, then he gets carrots. And he wow. figures that out all by himself. The uh, <laughs> the Oscar Funks then says, well, I've discovered what has happened here, and so obviously this horse is not capable of thought. Well, I would disagree. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he kind of, you know, he's so invested on proving that, you know, and he even said, wow. and Hans did not have a trace of musical ability. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> no kidding, wow. wow, that's and, an amazing uh, story. Yeah, and you know, it, it just, um, what's really cool too is that it's actually given us in psychology what we call the clever Hans phenomena, and that is the idea that we can inadvertently cue our subjects without intending to do so. And that's why we come up with the double blind experiment and things yeah. like that, so that we don't know the, the, you know, you don't know the conclusion you're looking for, or you don't know what side someone's on, whether they're in the experimental or control group. But I think what, what Funks missed and what, you know, so many people miss is, is how horses do communicate and how this cue was so subtle that nobody knew they were giving it. And even when Funks tried to suppress the cue, he wasn't very good at suppressing it. Wow. Like he still would do it even in a really, really subtle way that, that Hans was picking it up. So it tells us a lot about how we ride our horses too when we're yanking and pulling and kicking and carrying on, you uh, know, that is completely unnecessary. Like it can be pretty subtle and they yeah. don't get it. <laughs> and, and the, you know, just that like the thought of that's coming up on the right answer. I mean, that's intent is, would you say that would be the horse reading your, the, reading your mind, reading your intention, the thought of yeah. 
that's it. I mean, yeah. how subtle is that? So, you I know, we talk I about mean, eight phases of AIDS, you know, it starts yeah. with the thought, what's your intention? Mm-hmm. Wow. I love that story. Clever Hans. Yeah. All my because horses it, it, now are going to be clever, clever ovation and clever Natia. And clever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because I think, and that relates into what you're saying about intention, because if our intention is to go right, our eyes will go right, our body will slightly go right in ways that we're not even aware of. So our intention sets that cue and, and horses feel that because that's how they communicate with one another. You know, they don't, the whinnying you hear on westerns and stuff is not how horses usually, <laughs> they usually whinny when they can't see each other, right? Yeah, but most yeah, of their yeah. language is with body language and usually pretty subtle. Yeah, that's how the herd doesn't just go, you know. Yeah, <laughs> they exactly. Be a- <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's like one guy is at the hay pile and he, you know, one ear goes like this and the other oh, guy's yeah. like, oh, I don't even like hay, you know. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of here. Uh, yeah, I think most of the time we're, you know, we're blowing them out of the water. I feel like I get one little piece right, and then I hope my horse ignores all the stuff I do wrong. Well, Antonia, thank you so much. I'm so glad you were a game. I I read her article, and I just sent her an email like, I need to talk to you, and you were such a good sport. And um, thank you for taking this time and and sharing this. I know everybody in my classroom is just going to love hearing what you have to say. Thank you. Well, I've really enjoyed it and enjoyed the opportunity to meet you, Karen, and to meet someone who's a, you know, like-minded spirit. As soon as I, you know, started reading about what you were teaching, I thought, wow, we're really on the same page here and coming at it from slightly different angles, but, you know, really wanting the same thing for horses. So if it's anything we can do to make a a better world for horses, I'm all for it. Sounds good to me. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. If this episode resonates with you, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Training horses is a long game. The more you listen, the more pieces of the puzzle you'll have. To see all your learning resources, visit dressagenaturally.net. That's where you'll find free videos, online courses, my book. You can sign up for my Wednesday Wisdom email or even book a private consult. Most of all, remember, you got this. Never underestimate the possibility for things to improve in ways you cannot yet imagine. Till next time, love your horse, move in harmony, and enjoy the process.